How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I'm going to be in conversation today with David Blight, who has written the book called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, David Blight is a professor of history at Yale and a very distinguished scholar about African-American history, slavery, and related subjects. David, thank you very much for being in conversation with us today. Thank you, David. So there have been a fair amount of books written about uh, Frederick Douglass. Why did you feel a number of years ago that you should write another book about Frederick Douglass? What was it that propelled you to write this book? Well, I had no intention of writing a full biography of Douglas. I had written my first book, Once Upon a Time, on Douglas. Uh, it was a dissertation in graduate school, and I had edited editions of his autobiographies and written essays on him. And he was some portion, at least, of every other book I've ever done. But uh, I had an encounter 14, almost 15 years ago in Savannah, Georgia, with a collector. I met that day Walter Evans, who is a retired African-American surgeon who grew up in Savannah, but his real passion uh, has always been collecting African-American rare books, manuscripts, and art. But that day I met Walter, he took me to his house, he showed me portions of his Douglas collection, which is truly extraordinary. And it was that collection not overnight, it took me some months to <laughs> ratchet up the courage, but it was that collection that induced me to contemplate a full life of Douglas because the core of that collection covers the, the final third of Frederick Douglass's life from the Civil War to the end of his life in 1895. And the collection especially consists of nine very large family scrapbooks that were kept by Douglas's sons. And it is a goldmine for understanding not just Douglas, but his extended family, uh, their lives in Washington, D.C., his many political connections, his many rivalries. So it was that collection that induced me to write the book. And I indeed dedicated the book to Walter and Linda Evans. So for those people that are not familiar with who Frederick Douglass actually is, and there are many younger people may not have studied uh, his life yet, just briefly summarize, why should we care about Frederick Douglass? What was so significant about him? And does he still have relevance today? Uh, well, he, he certainly has relevance today. And I, I can say that simply because I've done many such events like this, many, many book talks, book festivals, now webinars. Douglas was born a slave. He lived 20 years a slave. 
He was born in 1818 on the eastern shore of Maryland. He lives all the way to 1895. He lived the almost full trajectory of the 19th century. But we remember him mostly in his words. He became what I love to call the prose poet of American democracy in the 19th century. He wrote three autobiographies, 1,200 pages of memoir. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of the shorter form political editorials in his newspaper, which he edited for 16 years, his anti-slavery newspaper. He wrote one novella, and then uh, perhaps most famously, he delivered thousands of speeches, and all of his great speeches exist in text. This man was a writer. How a slave becomes such a man of letters and such an intellectual is part of the extraordinary story about him. It is a kind of heroic literary story on top of the heroic story of his, you know, his escape uh, from bondage. But we remember him because of his literary creations and we remember him because he became probably the best American analyst of this problem of slavery and the crisis of slavery that led to the Civil War and then finally emancipation of four million slaves and then right on through the Reconstruction era and right into what we typically call the Jim Crow period. Douglas lives that entire trajectory. He never stopped writing. He never stopped commenting. And he is now really best understood, best encountered in his language in his words. Not unlike Abraham Lincoln in that sense, although obviously Lincoln became a president of the United States and had great power, but the real power, the only real power that Douglas ever truly possessed in his life was the power of his pen. Well, let's talk about the, his background a bit. You mentioned it a little bit. Let's go into a little more detail. Uh, he's born in the Eastern Shore and as a slave. He doesn't know who his mother and father is. Is that correct? That's right. And he is basically raised by whom? Well, raised uh, until he's six or seven years old. Uh, he was barely raised by anybody except his grandmother, uh, Betsy Bailey. He barely knew his mother, whose name was Harriet. Uh, he had mostly chance encounters with his mother. In fact, he had no real memory of her. He had to invent memory of her. His father was a white man, but uh, to this day, we still don't know precisely which one. He always was told and believed that the likelihood that it was that his father uh, was, was one of his two masters or owners, uh, the first Aaron Anthony and the second Thomas Auld. But at age seven, he is sent to Baltimore to be the companion, playmate, if you like, of his owner, Thomas Auld's brother's son. But the important thing was he was sent to Baltimore, a city, a, a great maritime port. And it was in Baltimore where Douglas will spend on and off nine of his 20 years as a slave. And the fact that he was an urban slave who lived and eventually worked in the shipyards of Baltimore, who could see every day that great maritime port with all those ships coming in and out and going out to the world. And perhaps most importantly, he lived in a community that had a very large free black population. 
uh, in the year he escaped, which was 1838, Baltimore had about 3,000 slaves, but it had about 17,000 free blacks. It was a pretty vibrant community. They lived circumscribed lives with no civil and political rights, but they had churches, they had fraternal orders, they even had a debating society. He made friends among them. So if Douglas hadn't been sent to Baltimore, we probably wouldn't even know him. But it was from Baltimore, in Baltimore, that he gains literacy, he begins to read the Bible, he encounters ministers and churches, and eventually from which he has an opportunity to escape. Well, the thing that really changed his life in Baltimore, as I understand it from your book, is that the wife of the owner, or the mm -hmm. brother of the owner, his yeah. wife taught uh, Frederick Douglass how to read, which was illegal at the time. Teaching slaves to read was illegal. Is that mm -hmm. really the great breakthrough in his younger years, would you say? It's certainly one of them. But yes, he was taught his literacy at first, when he's seven and eight years old by his mistress, the wife of Hugh Auld, Sophia Auld. And this went on for more than a year. Uh, she taught him virtually every day, according to Douglas's memory, and she read out loud with him. She read the Bible out loud with him. He's just a child. So his, his ability with language was only minimal, but it became a spark for him. Sophia Auld's husband, Hugh, came in one day, according to Douglas, and said, you must stop teaching that uh, N-word to read, because the next thing, he'll want to learn how to write. And uh, Douglas later loved that line. He loved to repeat it in speeches, and he would say, that was the first anti-slavery speech I ever heard. <laughs> because if, if this literacy thing is so important to these people, then I need to find out why. And Douglas took to words, he took to language, almost like any kid wants to, to figure out what they're good at. But then he had other people who helped him and other opportunities. When he's only 10 and 11, he encounters a bunch of little white boys in the streets. He called them the boys of Philpott Street uh, in Fells Point, Baltimore. These were white kids, uh, 10 and 11 years old. They were Irish immigrant children, maybe one or two were German children. He even remembers their names. And they all had a reader in their school called the Columbian Orator, which was their school reader. This was an amazing book compiled by a man named Caleb Bingham in the 1790s. And it was the second best-selling school reader in the United States after the McGuffey Reader. But this book, which Douglas found a copy of at a bookstore in Fells Point in Baltimore, which he managed to essentially barter for. This book was a collection of speeches from classical antiquity and from the Enlightenment, both British and American Enlightenment. And the beginning of the book was about a 20-page introduction or a kind of a manual on oratory. It was a how-to manual for how to make a speech, how to, how to use your voice and modulate your voice, how to build to crescendo, what to do with your arms and your shoulders, you know, and your physicality. And then it had a whole section in it on how a true orator must reach the heart of his audience, the moral heart of his audience with an argument uh, to persuade. This book became the most precious possession this kid had when he turns 11, 12, and 13. Uh, 
And then he even encountered an old preacher in Baltimore. His name was Charles Lawson. And this man was a, a kind of a storefront preacher. When Frederick was probably 12 or 13, he sits him down on Sundays when nobody's working. And they just read out loud, according to Douglas from the Bible, for hours and hours and hours. It's my theory that this is especially how young Frederick Douglass got language in his head, got the King James cadences in his head, was reading, particularly the Old Testament, he tells us, with old Father Lawson, as he called him. So he has many ways he encounters language while he's a slave. Then he starts attending churches. In his autobiographies, he talks about four different preachers that he remembered preaching in Baltimore, what he liked about him and didn't like about him. So he seizes upon language, and he starts collecting everything he can find, newspapers, magazines, anything that's written down, and he collects it, and he tries to read it. By the time he was a teenager, he was a very good reader. When he's back on the Eastern Shore, uh, he's 16 and 17 years old. At one point, he's hired out to a farmer named Freeland. And on that Freeland farm, Douglas even organized a group of, he called it his band of brothers. Uh, these were his fellow male slaves, some of them even older than him. But he was the only literate one among them. They would go into a brush arbor on a Sunday, and Douglas would practice preaching to them. And he would read out loud to them, he tells us from the Colombian order, and from the Bible. So in effect, he's already doing a kind of a preaching and a practicing with his techniques of elocution, even while he's a slave out on the Eastern Shore. He eventually comes back to Baltimore, and from Baltimore, he decides to escape with the help of a woman named Anna Murray. Um, who was Anna Murray, and what did she become, and where did they go when they escaped? Yeah, well, Anna was the woman he meets uh, when he's a teenager, probably when he was about 18 in Baltimore, when he goes back to Baltimore. She uh, was about three years older than him. She was born free. She's a freeborn black woman, a large family. All of her siblings had been born slaves. Uh, she was born actually about three miles from where Douglas was born, out on the Eastern Shore. But they meet in Baltimore. Clearly, they fell in love. She worked as a domestic in a white people's home, uh, but she helped him plan his escape from Baltimore. And he escaped on a day in late August, 1838. It was a highly planned effort here, although incredibly risky and brave. Uh, he dressed disguised as a sailor, broad-brimmed hat, sash around his waist, pantaloons, he even borrowed a sailor's identification paper. These were common documents. They had the American Eagle at the top, and he had the ID page, if you like, of an old black sailor who Douglas described as retired. And he simply got on the train in Baltimore, bought a ticket, rode the train up into Delaware, and through a process of about 36, 37 hours, three trains and three steamboats across the Delaware River, across the Susquehanna River, and eventually in a small boat across the Hudson River, he escaped into New York City. He entered New York City at the base of Chambers Street, and uh, that was his escape. He had really no further plan 
for where he was going to go and exactly what he was going to do, except his aim was to get to New York. As soon as he got to a safe place, that took a couple of days, he made it to uh, David Ruggles' home on Lispinard Street in Lower Manhattan, and David Ruggles was the leader of, in effect, the Underground Railroad operation in New York City. Ruggles was himself a former fugitive slave from Maryland. He gets to Ruggles' house and he wrote a letter back to someone, we've never been able to determine it, someone in Baltimore who alerted Anna. Anna was still illiterate and remained a non-reader the rest of her life, but the message was given to Anna. She had her bags packed. She got on the same trains, the same boats, and joined him in New York City. And they were married in the parlor of David Ruggles, September of 1838. Eventually, they move up further north. Uh, they move to uh, New Bedford and Lynn. Douglas becomes, what, a preacher? He gets uh, educated at, as a preacher. And does he basically travel making speeches? Is that what he does for a living? Yes. Well, they spent three years in New Bedford, which was known as a haven for fugitive slaves, a place of safety and security. That's where he changed his name from Frederick Bailey to Frederick Douglass, a name he took from a Sir Walter Scott epic poem called Lady of the Lake. And he added an S to the name, a new identity. Their first two children are born there in New Bedford. A third one will be born when they move up to Lynn, Massachusetts, three years later. But in 1841, after he's been preaching at the local African Methodist Episcopal Church, a little black church in New Bedford, where he had been seen or discovered by an associate of William Lloyd Garrison's, the famous Boston abolitionist, he was invited out to Nantucket Island, August of 1841, to a big anti-slavery convention, uh, and he was asked to speak. He was told, just tell your story. And that is, in effect, his first uh, sort of official anti-slavery speech to an anti-slavery organization. They actually asked him to speak the next day as well. And the garrison organization in Boston hired him. And then he went on the road in the fall of 1841, and he will be on the road now much of the rest of his life as an itinerant speaker, an orator, lecturer, he spends actually 1841 through 1844 into 45 as a hired speaker of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, traveling all across the North with small troops of abolitionists. I say hired, that doesn't mean he was paid very much. But from that day forward, in 1841, Douglas never made a dime, never made a living any other way than with, with his voice and his pen until he got a federal appointment from President Rutherford Hayes as the Marshal of the District of Columbia all the way down in 1877. So he does this and becomes well-known around the United States and it goes to Europe. He becomes well-known there as well for his oratory against slavery there also. But uh, ultimately, um, he shows up briefly at the Seneca Falls Convention was he an advocate of women having the right to vote as well? He was indeed. That's 1848. He was living then, by then up in Rochester, New York, and Seneca Falls is not that far. And there was a train line that went right there. Yeah, he is the only African-American abolitionist speaker 
at this first big famous women's suffrage convention in Seneca Falls. He uh, was not only a supporter of women's voting rights, he was also a supporter of women's economic rights. He supported a bill that repeatedly came up in the state of New York to give women rights after divorce, to give women rights to property ownership and other economic rights. Uh, He was a thoroughgoing women's rights man. In fact, when he returned to Rochester after the Seneca Falls Convention, his brand new newspaper was barely a year old called The North Star, and he changed the masthead on The North Star to read, right is of no color or sex. So he put his advocacy of women's rights uh, indeed, right on the masthead of his of his newspaper. So let's move forward to the Civil War period of time. Abraham Lincoln is running for president uh, in 1860. Um, he is thought by the South to be uh, possibly against slavery. Does Douglas endorse uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1860? Well, not publicly, but he did finally shoulder up to Lincoln and the Republicans. Through the course of the 1850s, Douglas underwent a kind of political education. He became a thoroughgoing political abolitionist and not merely the moral suasionist who did not engage in politics that he had been when he was under the tutelage of of William Lloyd Garrison. But Douglas had a hard time with the original Republican Party at first. He did support John Fremont in 1856, who was the Republican candidate for president. But in the off-year elections of 57, 58, he gave his vote to what was known in New York as the Radical Abolition Party, which didn't manage to elect anybody except Garrett Smith, uh, an abolitionist, to Congress once. And in 1860, Douglas was still wary of the Republicans because he found them, frankly, too moderate. Although, as he said many times, He was delighted to see that there now was a legitimate political party devoted to stopping at least the expansion westward of the system of slavery and a party, as you suggested, David, that now threatened the South. And in 1860, he said he was glad to see an anti-slavery tendency elected to the presidency. But does he think Lincoln moves fast enough uh, in getting rid of slavery? And does he actually meet with Lincoln? How many times did he actually meet with Lincoln, if at all? Oh, no, they met three times during the war. When the war broke out, Douglas believed slavery was the essential cause of this war and that a crusade to destroy slavery by the federal government should be its purpose. But it was not in that first year of the war, even more than a year. And he became a rather fierce critic of Lincoln and the Union war effort. In fact, he especially was angry, to say the least, at the policy of the Lincoln administration and the Union government in in trying to return fugitive slaves who had escaped to Union lines back to their masters. It was Lincoln's strategy in the first year of the war to try to keep the war limited to not make this a war on Southern society, an all-out revolution. Because for many reasons, Lincoln feared it would prolong the war, but more importantly, he feared uh, that the Union would lose the border states. There were still four 
border slave states that were still least technically in the Union. So for that first year of the war, Douglas was a fierce critic of Lincoln's. And he even at one point called Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the land. However, with the passage or the announcement of Lincoln's preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862, and then of course the final proclamation 100 days later, January 1st, 1863, Douglas's attitudes toward Lincoln changed greatly, and they will then meet. First, in August of 1863, not because Douglas had an invitation at that first point. Douglas went to Washington in August of 1863 to protest if he could get into the president's office, and he did, without an invitation. (laughs) He went there to protest the discriminations being practiced against black soldiers in the Union Army, uh, about 100 of which Douglas had personally recruited, including two of his sons. The second time they will meet, will be almost exactly a year later, August of 1864. And on that occasion, it was at Lincoln's invitation. At that point, Lincoln was up for re-election. His re-election was very much in doubt because of the uh, ghastly level of casualties in the war in the summer of 64, the war weariness that had set in across the North. And Lincoln invited Douglas to the to the White House to ask him to lead as the principal agent a scheme to funnel as many slaves out of the Upper South as possible before Election Day in November because Lincoln feared he might lose the election. Lincoln did not lose that election. He was saved in part by battlefield victories like the fall of Atlanta. But that fall, Douglas fully embraced Lincoln's candidacy wanted to go on the road campaigning for him, but the Republican Party would not let Douglas go on the road campaigning for Lincoln because the Republicans were being painted, this was classic wedge politics. The Democrats at that time were painting the Republicans as the party of emancipation, the party of N-word lovers and so on. And they didn't want this most famous black man up there campaigning for Lincoln. They will meet a third time, David, at the very end of the war, right after the second inaugural. Douglas traveled to Washington. He was in the audience. He stood down to Lincoln's left out in the crowd. He was there listening to that great speech, perhaps the greatest presidential speech ever given, the second inaugural. And then after that inaugural, without an official invitation again, Douglas got into line on Pennsylvania Avenue. He followed the presidential carriage back to the White House. He got in line at the White House for the post-inaugural reception. He sent through his card to one of the officers, and they said, sir, you don't have an invitation. You can't come in. He said, send my card and tell the president Frederick Douglass is here. And sure enough, they let him in. And Douglass tells us that they met in the big East Room where the reception was occurring, And he saw Lincoln's head above the audience, the crowd, and Lincoln saw Douglas, and they came together. And Lincoln asked, Mr. Douglas, I want to know what you think of my speech. Douglas tells us that he said, no, Mr. President, attend to all your guests. It doesn't matter what I think. 
And Lincoln said, no, I want to know what you think. And Douglas tells us he gave him a simple answer. He said, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. Now, we know that encounter happened because there's at least one other memoir in which this encounter was written down. But that is the last time they would actually meet. Douglas later, about two weeks later, got an invitation to come to tea with the president at the soldier's home, which was the kind of summer escape house, about a 25-minute uh, carriage ride from the White House. It was up on a hill and sometimes cooler. He had an invitation to have tea with President Lincoln, but Douglas had to turn it down because he had a speaking engagement. And of course, he didn't live in Washington. And then, of course, two weeks later came the news of the assassination. So those are the times they actually met. Uh, eventually, Frederick Douglass decides to move from Rochester, shut down that newspaper there, and then move to Washington. Why did he decide to move to Washington? Uh, they moved to Washington in 1872 because his house was burned, burned to the ground. By arson, and, you think? Well, he thought it was arson, and so did some newspapers, although they never found anybody or, or prosecuted anybody. But Douglas's house and much of his family was still there. He had four surviving adult children, numerous grandchildren. Uh, it was burned in 1872. And Douglas had to pick up, moved his whole family to Washington, D.C. He had already been traveling to Washington a great deal. And with his sons, his three sons had established a newspaper in Washington called the New National Era. And his sons were already in Washington as the printers on that newspaper. In fact, when the fire occurred, uh, Douglas was in DC and got a telegram saying, you must return immediately. So the rest of his life from 1872, uh, Douglas and his now burgeoning extended family four children, 21 grandchildren, and sometimes a variety of other sort of fictive siblings and fictive children. Uh, he lived in Washington, D.C. the rest of his life. Now, he had a complicated personal life, not only because of all the children and, and grandchildren, but he had relationships with white women. In fact, he, after his first wife died, he married a white woman who was much younger. I assume all mm. of that was controversial at the time. Oh, yes. The marriage, definitely controversial because it was so public. Uh, he had two other very important friendship relationships. One, I think, was only a friendship. I can't prove that. The other probably was more than just a friendship. One was with an English woman named Julia Griffiths, whom he met in England on his first tour of England in 1845 to 47, a very well-educated British woman who came from a pretty solid anti-slavery family, came to Rochester, lived in the Douglas house. For six years, she was Douglas's assistant editor on his newspaper. She was his principal fundraiser. She and her family, her sister, helped uh, purchase the mortgage on Douglas's house so he could keep it. Douglas could barely make ends meet in these early years of his newspaper. The second relationship went on for approximately 22 years, on and off, and that was a German woman named Ottilia Ossing, who came to America in about 1854, a brilliant 
German Jew who was a non-practicing, in fact, she was a, a fairly fierce atheist, but she was a German Jew, a German 48er. She had great radical credentials. She was highly educated in the arts and in literature and in languages. She read Douglas's second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom in 1855, and came out to Rochester as a journalist to meet Douglas in 1856 and asked him if she could translate my bondage and freedom into German, which she did. Uh, she will float in and out of Douglas's life for uh, the next 22 to 23 years as a friend of the family and as probably a lover. Now, Douglas's wife, Anna, of 44 years, the mother of his five children, the fifth one, Annie, died at the age of 11, Anna had been the, the center of his home, the center of his life, obviously raised the children. Uh, she did remain a non-reader and writer all of her life for reasons we do not know completely. She was a great domestic. She made that home. But she died after several strokes and a lot of illness in 1882. Douglas, for a while, came apart after that. He had what I think is the second a uh, major kind of emotional breakdown in his life, the first being in the early 1850s. But when Anna died that summer of 82, Douglas went off to Maine by himself, a place called Poland Springs, where we now get all these water bottles. He went there by himself just to deal with it. And then about 14, 15 months later, he married Helen Pitts. Uh, Helen was 20 years younger, as you said. Uh, Douglas was 66. Helen was 46. Helen had never been married. Helen came from a, a staunch anti-slavery family in western New York. She had served during the Civil War as a, a, a kind of missionary nurse and teacher in, in slave refugee camps around Washington, D.C., where she caught malaria. She came to Washington, D.C. during Reconstruction, like so many people did, and he hired her when he became recorder of deeds, uh, his second major federal appointment. He had eight appointments uh, as clerks in the office of the recorder. Well, on a day in February 1884, Douglas and Helen, they got secretly married. Nobody knew they were going to do it. They obviously decided to take all of the scandal and criticism after the fact rather than before. It hit the press, and it was, it, without question, I think, the most scandalous marriage of the 19th century. How many more years did Frederick Douglass live? He lived till 1895, so the last 11 years of his life, he had this marriage to Helen, and by all accounts, by every, any evidence we've been able to find, it was, it was a wonderful marriage. And when he died, was he honored uh, in Washington, D.C. with a big funeral and so forth? He surely was. By then, he had been a longtime member of the Metropolitan AME Church in D.C. Uh, there's still a pew there that they'll identify. There was a huge funeral held for him at Metropolitan. Paul Bearers were a kind of a who's who of African-American leadership. Bishop of the AME Church was uh, one of the speakers, and there were many others. Uh, Justice Harlan of the Supreme Court attended. 
whom Douglas had befriended. A few senators attended. And then uh, by train, his body was taken across the country and he was buried in Rochester, in Mount Hope Cemetery. And that too was a massive outpouring of people uh, in Rochester. So that's where he's buried to this day, in Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester, in New York. Well, I want to thank you, uh, David, for a very interesting conversation about Frederick Douglass and your Pulitzer Prize winning book on him, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful, David. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.